Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode focuses on Delaware's ongoing response and recovery from COVID-19. I'm joined by two of Delaware's community leaders, Michelle Taylor, the President and CEO for United Way of Delaware, and Dr. Henry Smith, Chair of the Wilmington Community Advisory Council. In our conversation on October 7, 2020, we spoke about the ongoing impacts of the pandemic on households and communities in Delaware, how their organizations have been involved in response efforts, and how we can pull together to continue addressing immediate needs while keeping long-term recovery priorities in mind. Let's get to the conversation. So, Henry and Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate you taking time. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting us, Troy. Sure thing. You know. <laughs> I wanted to kind of dive right into the nitty gritty here and talk about the impacts of COVID that you've seen. I, I know we've all seen uh, the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, and we've all seen high unemployment in Delaware and elsewhere. And I, I think we can feel a little numb sometimes to those numbers where they don't hit home necessarily, depending on their circumstances. So I'm wondering if from where you sit, you can give us a sense of how you feel those numbers have hit home in Delaware and its communities. I think in terms of hitting home, it's to attach the numbers to real people. And so I've spent some time over these past number of months that we've been involved with COVID-19, and that's going back to March, and literally driving through communities, okay? I've driven through essentially all of the communities where we have had the most significant positive uh, outcomes for, for COVID. That's places like Hilltop, uh, East Side, up there in the Northeast. And um, what is really, really touching to me personally is seeing so many people, particularly young people, who still are not in compliance with those CDC requirements of social distancing and wearing of a mask. I, I combine that with some things where I see people, individuals who are supposed to be our protectors, similarly not modeling the way of, of social distancing and wearing, and then even include some of our police officers, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, most touching, which is emotional for me, is um, I think the lack of leadership that we see among some of our political leaders at the highest levels of government. And um, those are things that make our work more and I think unnecessarily challenging when when uh, when we when we get when we get those things. So those are things that touch me personally. Just seeing the faces, these young faces who are exposed to something that is as serious as facing a gun. Michelle, what do you want to add? Yeah, I would echo with that. I I think you know, in more so probably in March, right when we were in a shutdown, people were taking it probably a little bit more seriously. Remember, people say COVID is here, it's going to go away. And then in the fall, it's probably going to come back and it might be worse with the flu season. But the reality is it never left. And so I don't know what comeback is. And so what we do know, though, is where states across the country that seem like they had gotten a control of the numbers that started to go down, we know that, what, in 30-something states, they're on the back on the tick up. And, you know, it's, not, it's more than just numbers, as Henry said. This is about lives. I personally had a member in my family that 
um, was one of the first people in Richmond that lost their lives to COVID in March um, when, you know, when it, this first came out. And so, you know, I think it becomes a much stronger reality when it hits close to home for people. But I would just, you know, reinforce what Henry said, our ability to make sure that people still understand the importance of the things. Some of it is preventable, some of it, not all of it, right? But social distancing, wearing a mask, practicing those things that we know to be safe, you know, they matter. And how do you feel some of these impacts have differed when you look at the geographic differences across Delaware and socioeconomic differences across Delaware? urban, rural, suburban, those kinds of things. Uh, what have been the impacts that you've seen uh, in those types of places? I know, Henry, you mentioned Hilltop and Eastside, for example, but up and down the state, east to west, what's it look like in your minds? Just for me, across the state, when, when I looked at the data quotes from the um, Division of Public Health just uh, this morning, actually, we have had nearly 300,000 Delawareans tested. That's 30% of the population, a little more than 30% of the population. Newcastle County is the most populous of the county and it had the most tests, over 172,000. And Newcastle County is certainly more urban than Sussex County, but Sussex County has the second largest number of those tested. And it's, um, it's, it's considerably more rural, uh, than Newcastle County. Canada's got the lowest, uh, the lowest number. So these numbers would suggest no real distinction between urban and rural. They're all, Everybody is affected, regardless of uh, geography, the way where you live geographically. But within these areas, uh, some of this is anecdotal, but I have no fear that it would be supported through some type of empirical effort. That income, uh, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity have some relationship to just how bad it is. We know, for example, in Sussex County, Sussex County was hit hardest among the Latino communities, the folks who work in those chicken factories, low-income earners. Here in Newcastle County, we started out focusing on the city of Wilmington, and where we've seen the greatest impact, as I said, is within certain census districts where income is, is low. And so those characteristics, I think, have an impact on who suffers most. Those individuals who are in service industries, for example, have been hit hardest in terms of employment. They are, they are top on the roles of the unemployed largely because of the nature of the work that they've been engaged in working in the in, uh, service industries. And those industries have, are not ones where you can work from home. And so those guys have been laid off at a higher rate. So, so the impact has some relationship to socioeconomic status, definitely to race and to certain kinds of uh, uh, section census tracts where low-income individuals reside. I know, you know, we've all experienced this in different ways. And, you know, I can look at myself talking to you from the third floor here and think, well, I have a position where I can work from home relatively successfully, although there's always challenges with that, too. But, you you know, people can look at themselves in the mirror and think about how they're affected versus people who have to work at the grocery store or, you know, go to a job that's that's more essential for in-person kind of operations. And I guess that's a good segue to, you know, how you've been involved in response and who your clientele have been during COVID. Uh, what have your organizations been up to in terms of helping out with response? And, you know, what has the clientele looked like? What have their needs looked like? I was just going to jump in with this one. So and to start and then Henry can color it in. So for us, through Delaware 211, first and foremost, you know, we've seen over a 70 percent increase in calls. Um, since March. 
And, you know, the number one reason that people are calling us is COVID related, right? It really was people want to know where could they go get tested or they're positive and maybe they can't stay in their environment because of fear of spreading it. And so where can they go and what their options are? And so COVID by far, right, has really increased the, the needs in our community. But right on the heels of that, as you pointed out earlier, Troy, you know, the COVID, which is a health pandemic, really calls the economic pandemic, calls the education pandemic. So all of the factors are um, affected. So we've seen a lot more people in need of just those basic needs, utilities, shelter, housing, what we would just consider to probably don't even think about as things that um, we do every day, there's been a much higher demand of them. And I think that the kudos, I want to say too, to the, you know, very, some organizations that have really stepped up. There were some that when COVID happened, you know, they kind of retreated in, and I'm talking about like those that are trying to serve the community. And there was others that stepped up and recognized there's a need and a greater need. And so we've been working collaboratively. Definitely our work Um, United Way with the Delaware Community Foundation and Dana and Philanthropy Delaware, where we jointly from the beginning recognized needs were going to be greater, you know, in a short period of time due to great support of individuals and corporations and foundations, you know, have been able to raise, you know, several million dollars or almost 100% of that, right? In addition to any COVID money that came in or CARES Act money has gone into the community, at least for ours, you know, 100% went to immediate needs, helping to buy food, helping to pay utility bills, helping, you know, to pay people's rent. And, you know, the need was still higher than what the capacity is. But then you had organizations that um, I think the senior centers, I mean, I give them like so much kudos that people who maybe used to go off and do meals on wheels and corporations. So then, you know, the corporations don't want their employees out you know, for their safety and their health. So, you know, Mills on Wheels to some degree stopped and ceased because, you know, a decrease in volunteers. But, you know, the call to action of the community, they fairly were in a coordinated way have made sure our seniors still got food delivered, medications to their house, right? Making sure telemedicine is still happening and they're meeting the needs up and down the state. From the beginning, you know, organizations like Latin American Community Center, West End Neighborhood House, Boys and Girls Club, Neighborhood House, First Aid Community Action. Those organizations, right, have been there, have expanded um, services, and their staff are on the front line too. Like I, you know, we say our healthcare workers are heroes. I think our community-based organizations, nonprofit leaders are heroes that, you know, and sometimes we had to make sure they had PPE. You know, they were working homeless shelters and they were delivering meals, not always with the equipment they needed. Henry was talking about having masks. They might've had masks. There was a shortage on masks. Remember at the beginning, you couldn't hardly find a mask because they were all primarily being used by healthcare workers or people needed to make more masks. And we thank those volunteers in the community, right? Who were making masks to make sure that our frontline communities was protected in a way that was necessary. And I think all of those things matter And then last, you know, I can't say this, but even right now with school being started and, you know, in this virtual or hybrid environment, a lot of parents can't afford, they have to work every day, you know, to keep the lights on. So who's there making sure that their kids are in front of a Zoom meeting and making sure they're doing their homework and answering their questions. 
And so, you know, we're grateful for these organizations that are standing up these learning pods to be able to provide that support and infrastructure. But again, think about it. You know, schools are thinking about, rightly so, bringing our kids back safely. But we also recognize that created a critical need in the community for where do our kids go and safe environments, learning environments to make sure, right, that their learnings, there's not additional slide. And community-based organizations have stood up. And so their staff are on the front line. So the very kids that can't go into schools because they're saying it's not safe are going into the Boys and Girls Club and at Latin American Community Center, right? And Neighborhood House and, and Hilltop. And so there's so much need that needs to be done. And there's this critical balance between health, making sure, right, we're, we're making decisions that protect our little ones and, and adults, but yet making sure that we still have people still have jobs right, from an economic perspective, and make sure that our kids are still educated in safe environments. It's it's some tough decisions. And in terms of, I mean, it seems a lot like sheer force of will that the organizations were able to respond. I mean, there was resources that came to the table too, but uh, is there still a tremendous resource need to support these community-based organizations in the efforts to, to kind of stand up these new responses? No doubt, no doubt about it. I think all of these community-based organizations can benefit from additional support. You know, we, we, we hear a lot about uh, governmental entities having lost revenue because of increased unemployment consequence of COVID. But these community organizations have also lost revenue because those contracts, for example, that they've had with governmental entities, those contracts have been reduced because they're not serving as many as, as many people. So they're faced with those challenges. And, and I would simply echo what Michelle has said about just how what a yeoman's task they have, they have performed. They've been exemplary in their response to this. And that even though they've had financial challenges, they have recognized the, the need to provide the kinds of support that Michelle talked about. There's some families going out to make a few bucks, but they have young children who cannot, should not be left at home. Now they're being taken in by these community organizations. Those organizations deserve support and um, they should get additional support wherever that can be found. And uh, I know, Henry, you mentioned, you know, some dissatisfaction, you know, maybe discussed <laughs> with uh, some folks not getting it in terms of not wearing masks appropriately, social distancing, those kinds of things. Uh, so maybe that might be an area where there was room for a better message from everybody for a mm-hmm. better outcome. But are there areas where you really feel like you mitigated impacts pretty effectively? I think we have mitigated negative, negative impact. The Wilmington Community Advisory Council was invited to become involved in, in this with us to really focus on the African-American and Hispanic communities in the city of Wilmington, because all of the evidence from across the country indicating that these two communities were being disproportionately adversely affected by COVID-19. By COVID and we, the Wilmington Community Advisory Council, uh, is a part of a pretty significant network of organizations, literally dozens of organizations that could be used, for example, in at least a couple of important ways. One is getting the word out about the importance of complying with CDC. And so, we mobilized that net network as a communications tool to get that, that word out. And uh, I, think, I think that that effort has been recognized. 
We also had a relationship with Daryl Chambers, who operates what was then called a community intervention team. And those were individuals who were on the ground passing out uh, literature. Uh, the city of Wilmington was using some individuals, some of whom actually came out of or still participants in the Hope Commission. There were folks formerly incarcerated, and they had um, positions with the city that only those hours were only um, available to them up until noon. But we were able to use some of them to help again, just getting the word, getting the word out. And the United Way was able to provide us some support in getting literature produced for distribution by, by those groups. So we think that those types of activities have ameliorating effects. We've also been fortunate enough to be able to establish solid working relationship with the state's Department of Public Health. Um, we've got, well, MAPCO has been involved and public health and MAPCO, we've had lots of data provided to us in very useful fashion so that we can target our efforts. We know where the hotspots are. We know where to go as a consequence of this. So I think our experience in developing and utilizing partnerships is very useful in this regard. We simply ex- uh, extended, um, extended that, that principle of partnership, if you will, and we think that it's had a positive effect. I was just going to add, because I think to some degree, I know Henry, he's telling you, but I, I think, you know, he's done a yeoman's job to him and um, Gwen. One of the things that I think came out of it that he didn't mention is they were really focused and instrumental on getting additional testing done in Wilmington and ultimately in their partnership with Newcastle County. And so by his group and his leadership being Focus. So, you know, we've been meeting every week, it seems like since March still, because, you know, this is an issue and looking at the data and looking at, and, and what our strategies are and revising, you know, in the beginning, we were talking about where testing needs to go to and working with grassroots organizations to make sure we were reaching the populations we wanted to. And we're still having conversations, you know, today at the meeting, right? Still about, you know, getting the right messages out and are we reaching the right audiences? And so, a lot of the increase in testing is one thing to be able to have sites. It's another thing to make sure people actually go to the sites, right? And they actually access the information. I think a lot of that, particularly in Wilmington and Newcastle County, is a direct or indirect correlation to um, Henry and Gwen and the Wilmington Community Advisory Council and the group that they pull together. Thanks for that, Michelle. So just, just, just one last point. Like I said, we initially came into focus on, um, on the city of Wilmington, but the data that was being presented to us said, whoa, you can't just, you just can't look at this small, relatively small area. We are surrounded by something called Newcastle County. And so as we got the data and started looking across the county, um, that's where we really saw the need to develop a stronger working relationship with, with the county. So uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Michelle. So we've We've recently been working very closely with the county as well. Well, it sounds like you'll have a lot of, you know, kind of key partnerships that have been tested over the last few months to really help you as you move forward. And I guess, meanwhile, you know, life goes on. <laughs> COVID's kind of dominated this conversation and it dominated a lot of conversations over the last few months. But if we look back to January or February, what would have your organization's priority tasks been then? And, you know, where do those stand now? What's the urgency of addressing some of those priorities that, you know, had to maybe not be put on pause, but, you know, had to take a backseat temporarily as you responded to this, you know, emergency? 
I have three for me. One is we would have been focused on still increasing the number of kids who can read by the end of third grade across the state. And so we're still focused on that. As a matter of fact, we actually feel like we lost ground because of COVID, right? And the recovery lost and the unfinished learning and kids within the, you know, tech desert or without the resources they need to excel. So that's one. Two is we were really focused on building a diverse pipeline of talent so that more young people, right, from within some of our promised communities across the state could be better prepared to go into a livable wage job. And, and again, some of that was halted, too, over the last seven, eight months because of COVID. And so while we're still trying to push it along, it is not without challenges, right, to be able to pivot to what, how you do this in a virtual environment as the world keeps moving. And then the last thing, we were working to get more families to be financially and stable and empowered, meaning we were trying to help families to build assets and to say, kiss your landlord goodbye and, you know, get out of renting and owning and thinking about how do you save. And, but so many families, as Henry um, noted earlier, with the increase in unemployment have gotten thrown into a crisis. And so now we find ourselves helping families. How do you just navigate, get out of crisis to get back to stability? Because a lot of families are going to come out of this with additional debt. That even though when the moratorium was placed and you couldn't evict you or you couldn't cut off your electric, they might not have been able, you might, you know, were able to evict you or cut your lights off, but they didn't forgive the debt. And so people are waking up now, right, with several months of past rent or several months now or past utility bills. While they may be working out payment arrangements with them, the reality is they're in more debt today than when they went in. Henry, I know when we talked earlier, you mentioned like some of the roots of your organization were violence in the city of Wilmington. Yes. Right. Is it was that the priority you were working on earlier in the year? That that was the priority. The, and the dimensions of that work around trying to make some contribution to addressing crime, particularly youth crime in the city of Wilmington, focused on what we call the social determinants, not the policing aspect, but social de- de- determinants. One of which um, grabbed our attention. Uh, at the outset, and that was the trauma that our young people experienced. Up until January, our work, up until January, February of this year, you know, our work involved uh, in training some 140 individuals in trauma-informed practice. We had uh, 55 folks trained as certified trainers to build future trauma-informed practice capacity. The other thing that we would have been involved in is continued work trying to strengthen the capacity of community organizations to work with young people. The Wilmington Community Advisory Council is not an operating entity, so we don't run programs, but we support organizations that do. The other area that we would have been focused on in February for sure, the General Assembly would have come back into session, and um, we spent a lot of time last year advocating for certain policies that had uh, implications for young people in the area of um, juvenile justice reform. And education, so we would have we would have been heavily involved with our policy agenda this past spring, and then we would have been involved with things like youth engagement and employment. So, so those things during this period of COVID nineteen has taken somewhat of a somewhat of a backseat to this more immediate work, if you will, dealing with uh, dealing with COVID nineteen. And as we think about kind of the short term needs, the need for response, and then think about long term recovery. And what that looks like, it's clear like those priorities will have to be dealt with too. 
And COVID's not going to go away with kind of a switch of the light, so to speak. Uh, it's going to take time for people to get back to normal, going to work, having you know job opportunities out there. How are your organizations working to kind of balance those short-term needs and then their long-term priorities? How's that playing out for you both? We know that we know that there's going to be long-term needs. Unfortunately, we've had Michelle Taylor, who was instrumental in establishing a new set of partnerships uh, under the aegis of what we call the Racial Equity and Social Justice Collaborative. Uh, which is a statewide operation focusing on about nine different pillars that have not just immediate concerns, but long-term concerns dealing with what's exacerbated COVID, things that existed before COVID, and what we want to address post-COVID. And those are all these issues surrounding racial equity and um, and social injustice. And so um, that's an umbrella that I think will be a very useful, a useful partnership for the WCAC and looking at these longer term issues. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, I was in a meeting yesterday and we were talking about, even when we were thinking about the education and, and some of the work, we really said we really need to be thinking about, or even around the racial equity work, we need to be thinking about the impact again that COVID has, not just, not that we've gone through, but is still the, the shadow that's still over us, right? You know, as a community, which you heard us talk a little bit about some of the impacts on education, it could be on health, it could be disproportionately on the jobs and the workforce, but how do we really navigate for that? So I think, you know, the strategy is we got to take a long-term view because we really got to be making sure we're thinking about systemic issues and institutional practices and policies that we want to break down or build up. But then we got to be thinking incrementally. I think there's some burning bushes and fires right in front of us today that if we got to put out, right, we'll, we'll never get to the squares to ourselves if we don't deal with these some of this immediate stuff in front of us. And then I think it's all the stuff in the middle, which is that intermediate stuff that's going to allow us to get fires out, get past crisis. Let's just say get past crisis, that we can begin to really develop what I would consider some stronger short-term, intermediate, long-term view, you know, right now we're still, we have our eye on long-term, right? On what the vision is. But I I really think there's still so many crisis type immediate needs still dealing with our communities from a health and economic and education perspective that we can't afford to take our eye off of. And they're still so big and complex that it's still going to take all of us to be figuring out how do we solve for it. I know, you know, we've all kind of seen and, you know, personally experienced, you know, a bit of what I would call kind of despair and outrage and fatigue over the past several months. And what you've just described is a lot of hard work, <laughs> you know, to make progress on these incremental things that are here and now while still having an eye on those long-term needs. I guess, you know, what have you seen from working and living in Delaware, but also just over the past several months that gives you hope that there's going to be that resilience here to kind of make progress and make ongoing strides towards recovery in the next you know, coming months and coming years. I think just the collaboration, right? You heard us talk about it. I think it's the collaboration that's happening through the Wilmington Community Advisory Committee. I, I think it was the call to action for people to participate in the 21-day racial equity and social challenge that had, what, 8,000 people sign up. And I think it's the individuals that we said that are on the front line every day 
really trying to keep the community at the heart of what we do, right? Focusing on both, you know, in your world, university, the qualitative, the people, the human side of it, the lives, the emotions of what people have to be able to go through while at the same time standing it up with trying to figure out what are the outcomes that we're really trying to achieve from maybe more from a quantitative perspective. And I can't say enough, it's just been the call of the community at, at large, but there's also been some, some new and some younger leaders that are a part of this movement now that are said, you know, enough is enough and they want to be a part of change and they're using their voice, they're using their muscle, they are um, mobilizing the community in new ways. And I think this me, that is part of the fuel that is going into the engine for a lot of us to stay motivated, that is giving us hope that, you know, better days are ahead. I, I like to believe, right, the best is still yet to come. What would you add and amplify there, Henry? I would add COVID-19 mobilization group. We meet every Wednesday from 11 to 12, roughly 11 to 12. And every Wednesday since I've been involved with that group, we get over 20 folks who show up and they are engaged. Racial equity and social justice group, three branches, Newcastle County, Sussex County, Kent County. And my Lord, with the Newcastle County group, what, with typically over 60 people, they show up. Gives me hope is the degree to which we have these folks uh, demonstrating, number one, adaptability. Because there are a lot of folks who've had to learn how to use Zoom. I never, <laughs> I never had, had to use Zoom. I want Zoom a lot. I can do Zoom because it's not just folks. Folks have adapted to ways necessary to make sure that we can continue to communicate with each other, continue to focus on, on issues. And that simply gives me lots of hope. That, and I'll also underscore one thing that um, Michelle said. The presence of young people not just showing up, but exhibiting a willingness to exercise leadership on a lot of fronts. Those, those things give me hope. Well, I, you know, there's a lot going on and I really appreciate you, you know, taking a little time today to give us a sense of kind of the incredible needs out there and impressive response over these last several months. And I, you know, look forward to future conversations with you and others in the community to keep tabs on how we can move forward and how we can all kind of contribute to the cause. Uh, But Henry and Michelle, just thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, Troy. To learn more about United Way of Delaware and the Wilmington Community Advisory Council, visit their websites at uwde.org and wilmcommunityadvisorycouncil.org. For more on the work of my colleagues and I at IPA, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks again for tuning in to First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon.